So if you've been around regroup at all, you will know that I have two irrational fears. And I have one irrational fear in life, uh, which is going downhill fast. My other fear is porcelain dolls, but I actually find that one to be perfectly rational. Um, yeah, you giggle, but if you have them in your house, they are watching you sleep, I promise you. <laughs> Creepy little harbingers of death. So I'm afraid of going downhill fast, roller coasters. I don't like them, that, that, uh, that feeling of falling that many of you pay for uh, on a regular basis at Universal is, for me, on a scale of one to death, right around you know, being chosen for the Hunger Games. So I don't like it. Uh, my, my mom uh, decided when I was growing up that she was gonna try to break me of my fear of roller coasters by forcing me to ride one. Seemed like a great idea at the time. And so we went to Kennywood Park in Pennsylvania and she put me on, uh, with her boyfriend at the time, she put me on a roller coaster called the Log Jammer. It's a water ride. It's pretty gentle as far as coasters go. It doesn't even have seat belts. It's not big enough to warrant them. And, uh, and they, they put me in this, you know, in this log between uh, my mom and her boyfriend. They put him in the front uh, because, you know, I don't want to see what's coming and behind her, so I'm kind of sandwiched in love. And they thought that maybe, you know, if I experienced what I feared in, in mitigated form, it would, uh, it would, I would see that it wasn't that bad. False. We also have to ride with three people that we don't know because the log seats six and there's only three of us. Uh, so, you know, we're in this log with these three people we don't know and we start to go toward that first hill and I, and I start to hear that click, click, click. You know what I'm talking about? The click that indicates that the uh, cart has been attached to a chain which will pull you up a hill and, you know, and then you're impending death. So the click, 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 um, the, we're on the chain and, and the click uh, reminds me that we're gonna fall and I begin to anticipate the fall. And as I begin to anticipate the fall, I also begin to wet myself. And so you can laugh, I was just a kid. I was only 15, 16. So, uh, <laughs> so my mom you know, realizes what's happening and she jumps up from her seat and she's like, oh! And then the people who I don't know behind her see the, you know, the yellow tide rolling toward them and they jump up and they're like, ah! And then we get to the top, we tip over the edge, the weight shifts, so they all jump up again because now the pee is rolling the opposite direction. They're, ah! In the chaos and commotion of this, you know, couple seconds, the actual fall kind of slipped by with minimal agony for me. The anticipation ended up being worse than the fall itself. This is generally my response to fear and uncertainty. I'm a worrier by nature. I worry about everything that you can worry about. I worry about how much I worry about things. Um, I worry when, when there's danger coming, I try to worry my way into a solution or I try to worry my way out of the reality that I find myself in. But it's useless, it doesn't work. And in fact, it only causes me to to experience all of my pain twice. I experience it first when I anticipate the fall, and then I experience it again when the fall comes, and sometimes the fall doesn't even come. You know, sometimes the, the, the cart changes course unexpectedly, and then I have already self-inflicted a bunch of pain because I am just constantly listening for that click, click, click. This morning we're gonna be talking about the experience of Advent through the eyes of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And, and the more that I've studied this passage, the more that I have become continually impressed by this girl who had none of the resources available to me, none of the potential for self-sufficiency, and yet, and yet she willingly, faithfully receives a call from God that will expose her to incredible uncertainty and personal risk. I don't, I don't have this kind of faith in, in God. I don't have this this level of peace with whatever he deems best for me, but I want it. I've wasted 
hours of my life listening for that click, 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 hours I could have spent, you know, reading books I enjoy that aren't for sermon prep and, 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 and time I could have spent going on dates with my husband or, you know, blowing raspberries on my daughter's stomach. I mean, that stuff's hilarious. Paying attention to the people who are standing in front of me talking at any given moment. I, I can't get any of those minutes back, but I want them. So how do we, how do we turn that corner? How do we become people who don't run from discomfort so fast that we don't see that there is a blessing bundled up in the middle? How do we embrace uncertainty with courage? Just once I wanna look at a challenge that's coming at me and begin to extrapolate out to all the best case scenarios instead of the worst ones. And I, I know I justify it by saying that I'm just exercising wisdom. But wisdom is knowledge applied, not knowledge despaired. So I at least have a lot to learn from Mary's response to God, and I'm hoping maybe this will be helpful for some of you also. Our passage today is from Luke. The gospel writers had an immense amount of source material to choose from. They got to pick what they wanted to include, what they wanted to exclude, what facet of Jesus's character that they wanted to hone in on. And, and in Luke, the theme appears to be love. And not just love for, for his bride, the church, but love for each individual within that church, a wide variety of individuals. His genealogy uh, of Jesus begins with Adam, not Abraham, which is significant of the inclusion into salvation of the Gentiles. He gives us the Roman centurion, the name in the Syrian, the good Samaritan, Mary and Elizabeth, the, this, this teenage girl and this old woman, foreigners. I mean, Luke is immensely interested in conveying God's love for all people, regardless of their credentials, the tender, fierce, and very personal love of God. Luke's gospel is all, also a singing gospel. In it, we find the Magnificat, Mary's song, which we'll look at today. We also find the Benedictus, Zechariah's song, when his son John the Baptist was circumcised and he was miraculously allowed to talk again. We find the Nunc Dimittis, which is Simeon's song, when the old man first beheld the baby Jesus at the temple and he says, Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. The verb rejoice occurs more in Luke than it does in any other New Testament book. It is a gospel of love and hope and joy, but it begins with a very dubious announcement. Many of you know this story. Mary's a young Jewish girl, no older than 15. She's engaged to a man named Joseph and she is visited by an angel who tells her that she is going to conceive through the Holy Spirit and give birth to a boy who will be called Son of the Most High God. And she willingly, faithfully embraces this prophecy, but what we need to understand is what it was that she was accepting. Social norms were incredibly different in first century Palestine than they are today. Women were considered property of their fathers and then later their husbands. They could be given or leveraged in business transactions or to pay debts. Also, Mary's pregnancy will occur before her marriage to Joseph. Now we know that, that in, from Matthew, you know, Joseph is visited uh, in, in a dream and told the truth of where the child is gonna come from and, and so that's okay, but, but there is a gap. You understand there's a gap between when Mary was found to be pregnant and when Joseph heard the truth in a dream. And not only that, there was no promise ever made to Mary that Joseph was even going to receive a prophetic dream. She didn't know it was gonna happen. So, so, so when she agrees to this arrangement, Willingly, faithfully, I am the Lord's servant. Let it be done unto me as you have spoken. The, the danger of what she has just accepted is gravely serious. Mary 
must accept that she will be marked with a scarlet letter. We know her character to be righteous, but, but, but she will suffer social scorn for the rest of her life because it appears as though she has been unfaithful. She will be marked unjustly forever as the mother of a bastard child. And to this she says, I am the Lord's servant. Mary must accept the loss of Joseph's love. We know from scripture that he loved Mary and she must know that this is going to break his heart. She must cope with the reality, the, the, the probability that he's going to divorce her and that she will be left to fend for herself and her unborn child in poverty and shame. And to this she says, I am the Lord's servant. Mary must accept the possibility of her own lawful death. The book of Deuteronomy called for the stoning of a woman who was found to have committed the sin that they perceived Mary did. And to this she says, I am the Lord's servant. And so with all of this hanging over her head, the uncertainty, the questions that this must have caused her to have, Mary goes and she visits her cousin Elizabeth, who the angel has told her is also pregnant under different but, but also miraculous circumstances. And when she enters the house, there's an interaction between these two women that uh, you know, Elizabeth prophesies, and, and it confirms for Mary the truth of what she has heard from the angel. This, is, this was not a dream. This is going to happen. You will, you will conceive and bear the son of God. You will receive a blessing and the blessing is gonna cost you a lot. And in that moment, when no doubt the full magnitude of what will happen, what she'll have to give up, what pain she'll have to face is impressed upon her mind and heart, in that moment, Mary sings. In the face of uncertainty and danger, she begins to sing. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my savior for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on all generations will call me blessed for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought rulers down from their thrones. He has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. This is God's word. So in the face of danger and uncertainty, Mary sings a song, a hymn of praise. How I wish that my response to the unknown would be a hymn instead of a dirge. All the paintings and the mosaics we see of Mary capture her gentleness and mildness, and to be sure she was these things, but she is also one of the most courageous people that we see in all of scripture. Even under, even under ideal circumstances, pregnancy is difficult. And don't get me wrong, it is an immense blessing, but it does cost us something. My daughter Ember was the easiest blessing I've ever received. We discontinued birth control. Rob raised one eyebrow at me suggestively, and then we had a baby. It all happened very, very fast. Since having Ember, my, my health has gone through some significant changes. I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis. I'm, I'm also 35, so, so that puts me in the high-risk category should we choose to get pregnant again. My body's just not what it used to be three and a half years ago, nor my ability to recover. So all of this considered, while I knew that we wanted to have another child, I really agonized over whether it should be through me getting pregnant or through us pursuing adoption. I just have no way to know. 
how I will tolerate pregnancy or the recovery from surgery. So I just wasn't sure. But about six months ago, Rob and I talked about it and we're like, you know what? We're just gonna give it a try. We're just gonna, we're just gonna trust God to, to get us through whatever those circumstances will look like. So six months ago, we started trying again. And every month, because it was so effortless with Ember, I kind of, you know, just kind of assumed I was pregnant. Every month I would get to this point where I'm like, you know what? I think I might be pregnant. I felt a little nausea. I didn't like the smell of that onion. I had a dream that I gave birth to a Pomeranian. I must be pregnant. And when I'd become convinced of this, I'd completely freak out. Rob, I don't know if I'm ready for this. My body's so beat up. I'm 35. Ember is still kind of the bully of her daycare. We haven't figured that out. We're always so busy. I don't think I'm a good parent. Oh my gosh, what were we thinking? Ah! And then, you know, I'd look over that text message and wonder if I should have saved it for an in-person conversation. <laughs> so every month, you know, I, I thought I was pregnant. And every month when the test would be negative, I'd be heartbroken. Even though hours earlier, <laughs> hours earlier, I'm freaking out going over this in my mind, is this a good idea, second-guessing my decision. I didn't even remember those feelings. Every time I saw that minus sign, I just burst into tears. And poor, poor Rob, who was like clinging for dear life to the cart of this emotional roller coaster I'm riding, would try to comfort me and say, well, you know, uh, you said you weren't sure if you wanted to be pregnant, so, you know, maybe, maybe this isn't the worst news, right? And I'd be like, why do you hate babies? <laughs> Yeah, I sent him some real mixed messages. <laughs> if there's any other husbands in here in this position, I, I tried to think of an analogy that would help you relate to this abrupt and mysterious ebb and flow of emotions. Let's say you're a Cleveland Browns fan, right? And your, your record is hypothetically 0-11. And, and you know that uh, you're gonna be playing the Steelers in a little bit and, uh, and say, D my hatred of them is warranted. I grew up in Pittsburgh. Um, so, you know, you're gonna be playing the Steelers and you know you're gonna lose, but you're also pretty strapped for cash right now. And so you think, you know what? I'm, I'm gonna bet against the team I love. And, and it breaks my heart to do it, but at least when I have to watch them lose, at least I'll have a little more cash. So you make your bet. And then lo and behold, the Browns start to win. They do better and better. And then miraculously, they, they pull it out with, with, you know, a field goal at the end of regulation. And everyone in the world is completely surprised. Even God Almighty is like, how about that? So... <laughs> Understandably, in the last few moments of the, that game, your, your feelings were understandably conflicted. You were delighted to see the team that you love win, but you know that their win was going to cost you something. That's kind of where we're at. Not all of us, but some of us. We, if we're sending mixed messages, it is because we are feeling mixed messages. It's like, yes, I know this is what I've, I've wanted, but man, is it gonna cost me? Mary would have been familiar enough with the teachings of scripture and rooted enough in the culture and history to, to long for the arrival of Messiah, the savior of her people, Israel. It is the blessing that she would have yearned to receive. So I'm not trying to say that this pregnancy wasn't like more of a blessing than an ordinary pregnancy. Certainly it was. Certainly there was much more offered in this child than any other. But the circumstances under which she was to receive this blessing were no less dangerous or frightening, simply because the blessing was so great. She was still a vulnerable teenage girl. As any faithful Jew, she longed to see the consolation of Israel. This is a blessing that she'd always hoped for, but she knew, she knew that it was gonna cost her. And she sings. And so I wanna look at the reasons why. Mary's song can loosely be broken down into two sections. It mimics the common form of psalms of praise with, with which she would have been familiar. 
So she praises God and then she offers the grounds for her praise. In the first three verses, this is his present goodness to her personally. In the remaining six verses, it is his goodness to, the, to his people past and future. So in the first three verses, we see that Mary sings because she has a right understanding of herself and her own need. She sings, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. Mary recognizes that she too needs a savior, that, that she too will be saved through the grace and the power of the child she carries. Mary's response in her song embodies an incredible humility. And this isn't kind of self-effacing. This is just a, a confident and clear understanding of her position in relation to God. Romans tells us there is no one who does good. No, not one. It doesn't, it doesn't matter what your pedigree is, what your credentials are, who your family is, how good you manage to be. Mary was the mother of God, but she knew she could get it wrong. Do, do we know we can get it wrong? Do we understand our own need? When we wanna mend that relationship, but, but, but you can't stop being mean because of the time that they messed up big, do you know your own need? When you're buying that bottle of wine with cash because you don't want her to see it on the credit card statement, do you know your own need? When we call in sick to work because we're too sad to get out of bed in the morning, do we know our own need? And these may seem like things that are small enough for us to handle, you know, not, not quite serious enough to warrant a savior. But listen, this is important. It's not about the drinking or the resentment, or the depression. If it were just about that, we could handle that, but these aren't the cancer. These are the symptoms. The cancer is much deeper. It's the belief that dates back as far as the Garden of Eden that we don't really need God, that we like him. You know, we'll thank him before our dinner and we'll make some space for him on Sundays, but we don't really need him. That lie, that pride is killing us. One small decision at a time. It's why Christmas had to happen. It's why he had to arrive. It's why he let us kill him. Do we know our own need? Even in her righteous response to God's call, Mary knows that she needs a savior too. I can't save myself. You can't save yourself. The strongest person you know can't save themselves. Without Jesus, we are without hope. She will be the mother of Jesus, but she too will submit to his authority. If, if I hope to ever respond to this will to anything in my life, the first step is to have a right understanding of my own need, the humility to admit that I can't do it on my own, that I can't save myself from anything. Parenthetically, we see the same humility in Elizabeth, who she's visiting. Now, Elizabeth had endured years of scorn because she, she was barren, she was an old woman and she could not have children and, and, and even though that we know she was righteous, that was thought to be a punishment from God for your sin. I, I can't go into all the details, but basically God gives Elizabeth a son, John the Baptist. And so she's six months along pregnant when Mary comes to visit her and she cries out. When Mary walks into the house, Elizabeth cries out, why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Now, she had reason to not be delighted by this visit. She was finally having her moment. God had opened her womb, she'd, she'd gotten pregnant, he was removing her disgrace, and now her fresh-faced little cousin comes twirling in with a baby bump. She had reason to be bitter, but she wasn't. 
genuine humility. There's no bite of sarcasm in her voice. It's not like when your sister announces that she's pregnant one week after you announced that you were pregnant and you know it's because everything is a competition with her and when she comes over, you're like, well, why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? It's not like that. With Elizabeth, it's genuine humility and delight. Mary sings these first three verses because she has a right understanding of her own need and it produces humility. Then she goes on to sing the remaining six verses about God's goodness to his people, past and future. And Mary sings these verses because she has a right understanding of the character of God. Her song is dripping with references to the Old Testament. She sings, his mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. And you can hear the words of Deuteronomy in there. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations. She, think, she sings, he has brought down rulers from their thrones. And in that you can hear the prophet Ezekiel, remove the crown. The lowly will be exalted and the high brought low. A ruin, a ruin, a ruin, I will make it. She sings, he has helped his servant Israel. And you can hear Isaiah, but you, Israel, my servant, I will strengthen and help you. Do not be afraid. She sings, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever. And you can hear the voice of Yahweh himself in Genesis, I will establish my covenant with Abraham as an everlasting covenant for him and his descendants after him. In the face of certain pain and trial and disappointments of every kind that will come as a result of her predicament, Mary sings because she understands the character of the God who has called her to this moment. See, Mary does not isolate her story from the rest of salvation history. The, the promises of, of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, those are her promises too. When the shepherds come and they visit the baby Jesus uh, and they talk about what the angels had spoken about them, it says that Mary pondered these things in her heart and that, that Greek word to ponder means to, to put into context, to piece it Together, she has dug into the word of God throughout her life and she's putting the pieces together to understand what he's really like, what he intends to do, not just what he has done, but what he intends to do in the future. The second half of Mary's song is prophetic. She sings not just of what God has done, but what he will do through her and the child that she's going to bear. She has confidence in the character of God that his character will remain steady even in the parts of her story that have not yet been written. One of the most frequent calls in scripture is to remember. And that's because we forget things so quickly. We call foul on God anytime anything bad happens in our lives as though this one incident is the only evidence we have, the, 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 the only possibility of, of who God is and what he thinks about us. If we ever want to be people of courage, if we want to be people who embrace the rigors of life with joy and ferocity, if we want to stop being so afraid of the future, we have to stop reading only half the book and then blaming the author for not resolving the plot. When it comes to the story of God, there's, there's no use in believing any of it if you're not going to believe all of it. If we're gonna be sons and daughters of God, which is what Jesus makes us, we have to embrace our family history and it is so much more than the small period of time that we live here on this earth. When we're adopted by God, we must admit into our history the manna from heaven, the healing of the leper, the resurrection of Jesus because it tells us who we are and what God does for his children. 
Mary doesn't assume that her story is disconnected. She, she ponders these things, she pieces them together in context and she includes evidence from ancestors hundreds of years distant from her and that is incredibly important. Because if we don't connect our personal story to the history of God's people, we will never understand what he is really like. We won't understand We'll shorten the timeline and we'll never see how faithfully he keeps his promises and then we won't have the courage to go forward when he calls us to a task that is incredibly risky but has incredible blessing bundled up in the middle. If we shorten the timeline, we can't see how faithful he is. We can't see that God's promises don't time out. They don't time out. It's not like when John Parker says, oh yeah, you know, I promise I'll give you back that copy of Out of the Silent Planet, but after 18 months, I know he's not going to, and he knows that I know he's not going to, and so, you know, I stop asking, and he stops making eye contact in the strategy meetings, and eventually we both forget. This is all hypothetical. <laughs> God's promises don't time out. If we look at the whole of history, we'll see that he has fulfilled them and he is fulfilling them still. And the better we understand the character of God, the more we will be willing to trust him and to go where he calls us. And listen, I know we're gonna get it wrong. I know we're gonna get it wrong sometimes. Even Mary got it wrong sometimes. She shows up with Jesus' brothers to, to haul him away by force when he's saying some stuff that they think is a little crazy. They're trying to interfere with, with the, the, the ministry of Jesus that will bring about the salvation of the entire world. Even Mary got it wrong sometimes. She has great faith in the promises of a God whose character she knows so well, but even sometimes she misunderstands how he is going to fulfill them. We all get it wrong sometimes, but we don't have to be afraid of that. We don't have to let that keep us from saying yes to God, even if we are afraid of what he's asking, even if he's asking something really big because we don't know who is depending on us to say yes. Where would we, where would we be if Mary hadn't? There are times when I am so grieved by what feels like the limitless sorrow that we have to keep experiencing in this world. When my friend went to the hospital pregnant with two babies but came home with only one. When I lost my brother in an overdose. When my mom's friend lost her daughter who was kidnapped and trafficked. I get so angry. And for a minute, I hate, I hate the fact that Jesus isn't back yet. That we have to endure one more day, one more minute of this perpetual gladiator match with a bent creation that's soaked in our tears. But listen... The best way, the best way for me to honor the pain that is experienced by those I love, the best way we can all honor the pain that we experience is to not let one of those tears be wasted. All of those tears represent time. Time that Jesus delays his return because there is not a single one of us that he is willing to give up. Make no mistake, he's coming back. Christmas is not the last time that we will see him arrive. He is coming back and he will wipe away every tear and heal every wound and he will destroy every remnant of evil, but he longs to do that without destroying us with it. He's giving us time. Time to get home and bring as many people with us as we possibly can. What was true for Mary 
is true for us still. God is breaking into this world still through ordinary human beings. We are his plan A and there is no plan B. We are the ones who deliver this message to those he misses most. Christmas is about Jesus arriving in this world to give us hope where we once had none and he's still doing that. You understand? But he's doing it through you and through me. And we honor every tear that is cried by using what the enemy intended for evil to bring about his undoing. And I know that when we do actually understand our own need, our own flaws, our cowardice, I know that when we understand that, it can seem an impossible calling. But take a look at his character. Dig in. Take a look at it. Do your best to ponder it and to piece it together like a frightened teenage girl once did. And then maybe you and I too can look at this calling and sing. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you arrived Thank you that you still arrive through ordinary human beings, that we don't have to be perfect, Lord, because you choose to use us exactly how we are, broken, loved, covered in your grace. Lord, we confess that we often choose comfort over blessing, that we run from the challenges that we see you giving to us because we're so afraid of them, we're so afraid of the pain, or we're just so afraid that we're gonna end up disappointing you. They're gonna be found to be failures. Lord, give us courage. Give us the will to look deeper into your word to better understand who you are. And then help us remember. Help us remember it when the difficult times come so that we too can be people of courage, that we can be people who respond to your calling with a song. And we pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, in whom we put our hope, amen.